You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnis. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I guess we're going to keep doing this on Mondays for a while. You know, until somebody forces us to just like physically comes in here and forces us to change, I think that's what it's going to take. Until we get involved in some kind of hostage situation, is that what you're saying? I feel like it's kind of amazing we haven't been involved in some kind of hostage situation. Or yeah. maybe... Here's a here's a one that's going to blow your mind. Maybe this whole thing is one big hostage situation, and we don't even know it. Well, that would make it a very strange hostage situation. How in your mind would, would that work? I didn't think, think this shit through, man. <laughs> I just said it. I think it's more more likely that this whole thing is your just crazy dream, and I represent some part of your subconscious. Probably. The cool part, the sexy part of your subconscious. <laughs> Probably. That, Probably the the latent homosexuality that I've pushed down under the surface is manifest through you Just and how bubbling up and how sexy you are, uh, and I'm somewhere uh, asleep in bed as a child with a fever, manifesting itself in your unrealized desire to co-host a mixed martial arts podcast. That's the most. It's the only explanation that makes sense. Ben, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you once again by DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com continues to offer the biggest daily fantasy contest in mixed martial arts ever. They awarded over $300 million last year, and this year they're investing even more heavily in the sport. This weekend at UFC 184, you got your Ronda Rousey. Mm -hmm. You got your Holly Holm. Okay. You got your Jake Ellenberger. All right. Got your Alan Joban. Oh. You got El Kukui, Tony Ferguson. Nailed it. Man, I just picked your team for you right there. All you got to do is pick four, no, five fighters. Stay under the salary cap. You score points when your fighters rack up statistics like significant strikes, takedowns, sweeps, knockdowns, and knockouts. You gain bonus points based on which round your fighters end their bouts. If you're just signing up now for DraftKings.com, you can use the promo code CME when you sign up. Ben, tell them what that's all about. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com and use promo code CME to play Daily Fantasy MMA for free this weekend during UFC 184. You could win your slice of $1 billion in prizes being awarded this year. Enter CME to play for free now at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. We got uh, music again this week. Matt Thomas, a CME listener, a drummer, and a music producer, sent us some of his tracks. He says the best way to describe his music is as, quote, laid-back electronic ambient stuff. I actually really like that genre. And he included this note. Tell folks if he's not moved to tears, it's only because he's dead inside. Well, that could be. That could be. Uh, does he not have a weird band name? Because I feel like that's one thing that we've established here on the CME. It's that when you write in with your music and everything, we want you to have a, a really bizarre band name. Well, he's told me that he's in a band, but this uh, ambient electronic music is more of his side project. Okay. And the SoundCloud address is soundcloud.com slash MGT81-1. So maybe that's his weird DJ name. So he's like a, he's like a, a robot DJ. Maybe, yes. Okay. Does not compute. More and more I'm starting to feel like there's no way this is real and this is just your dream. <laughs> Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, look, we all like Kat Zingano. Nobody wants to see more bad stuff happen to Kat Zingano. But with Ronda Rousey going off at negative 1250 in some places, what's our barometer for success or failure or even just having a good time at UFC 184? And in round two, the big homie Manny Newton, Sokaju, Paul Daly, Muhammad Lawal, Czech Congo. Look, if you're going to watch a Bellator show, it should probably be this one. And in round number three, Holly Holm makes her octagon debut on Saturday, and Cyborg Santos is all but signed to the UFC. Is it possible the women's bantamweight division is about to get some much-needed help? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. 
The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Nathan Hall. He writes, since Michael Johnson made his UFC debut after his stint on Tough like five years ago, he had racked up 12 UFC fights. But it wasn't until he beat Joe Lazan into next week and then knocked out Gleason Tebow that I started taking him seriously. Now here he is, probably somewhere in the top 10 after having just whooped all over Edson Barboza. Yes, the same Barboza that almost had Cerrone out cold and simply embarrassed Bobby Green. What's next? Next for the menace, and can we just take a moment to talk about his recent UFC career? Yeah, we can. You know what? Uh, Michael Johnson now, Ben, after uh, beating Edson Barbosa on Saturday night in the co-main of UFC Fight Night 61, is riding like a pretty impressive four-fight win streak that uh, is kind of flying a little bit underneath the radar, I think, just because he's in the stacked lightweight division, or at least it was flying underneath the radar until this past weekend. Um, but you know, he's got a little, a little time to wait, I think here while the, the championship carousel at 155 pounds sorts itself out because we already know that Anthony Pettis is going to fight Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, coming up in March. And then, uh, Donald Cerrone and Habib Nurmagomedov are going to fight, we think probably for the next number one contender ship. Uh, but Michael Johnson is out there. He called out Benson Henderson after this fight. Why not? Uh, which seemed apropos to me, even though Benson Henderson is probably going to, uh, use a little time off after fighting twice in a couple of weeks, uh, since January 18th, I believe. But, uh, yeah, Michael Johnson has come a long way, uh, in terms of his development as a fighter. And if he can keep himself from previous suspensions, I believe he, he's got a bright future this year. Yeah, I was going to say, if we're going to talk about Michael Johnson's recent UFC career, as Nathan Hall suggests, let's not forget that uh, the reason we didn't see him for a little while there in 2014 is because the UFC had suspended him pending the investigation of a domestic violence uh uh allegation and didn't tell anybody. Yeah, he was on double secret probation. Yeah. Suspension. Which, not maybe not the best way to handle that if you're the UFC. So... You know, if you're if you're thinking, oh, maybe the guy had an ACL thing or something, that's why we didn't. No, secret suspension. That was it. You know, just just like a professional sports league is gonna do. But okay, so he comes in here against Edson Barboza, and I gotta tell you, I was surprised. I was really surprised with the way this one went. I saw Barboza, uh, just you know, having that stinging power that he has, being able to fend off the takedowns and eventually catching him with something that would make uh. Michael Johnson go a little stanky leg on us, and it didn't happen. He just came out, immediately got in Barboza's face, never really gave him the the space or the time to get his kicking game going, uh, and had him on the run pretty much the whole fight, and took some shots. You know, did did every, every once in a while lunge right into one of those left hooks as Barboza sidestepped him, but stayed after him, kept the pressure on, and you got to admit, after a performance like that, it does make Michael Johnson seem like the kind of guy who. Uh, when he can show up ready and really get after you, he could be a problem for a lot of people at 155. Yeah, I, 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 that was my impression coming away from this fight too. Like his, his pace and his forward pressure, I think won the day for him in, in this fight. Uh, and impressive that he was able to go, what, 15 straight minutes pretty much without slowing down, without letting up very much. Uh, in the little giant arena down there in Porto Alegre, Brazil, which we were led to believe was like a hundred degrees inside with the, uh, with the humidity. Yeah. Thousand so, percent humidity from yeah, what I saw. Fifteen hundred percent humidity out there and, and he, he carries right through. So that, uh, that's an impressive performance as far as I'm concerned. Um, were you surprised that Barbosa's lack of urgency later on down the fight? Cause I, I, you know, we didn't get to see in between rounds, uh, but, I think it was, you know, Anik or Kenny Florian mentioning that in between the, the second and the third round, his corner, uh, maybe Ricardo Almeida in his corner telling him, like, look, your mother's here. Everybody's here. You know, go out there. Like, this is your chance. You get, you're probably down on the scorecards. Go out there and take it to this guy. And you didn't really see that. Yeah. Well, pulling out the mama card, first of all, that's some serious <laughs> shit. Hey, you know, desperate times, man. I guess. Well, and you know what? Edson Barboza seemed like he tried to get the Ferrari out of the garage. Like he, he scored with some punching combinations. He, he kicked Michael Johnson upside his head once, uh, pretty, pretty significantly. He caught him with a hard knee. He tried to hit him with the flying knee, but like it just seemed like 
the pace and the pressure of Michael Johnson, Michael Julian Johnson, by the way, uh, okay, just kind of befuddled him, man. It was like it's like one of those things where he did seem like he didn't know what to do. Like it kind of screwed up his rhythm and he just didn't know how to uh, respond to it that effectively. Yeah. And I mean, when you get a guy just moving side to side and moving backwards the entire time, just hardly taking a, a forward step in that fight. Really hard to win that way. You know, it seems like kind of the opposite of, of what he did against Bobby Green uh, in a lot of ways. And I, I don't know. I was surprised uh, not only at the way this one went, but at the way Barboza seemed content to let it continue to unfold. I, I mean, I guess, you know, sometimes three rounds, 15 minutes is a short time to, to stop and figure out here's what's happening. Here's what I'm doing wrong. Here's what I'm allowing him to do to me and to turn that around. Uh, but it seems like that's one of those things that we've seen that really separates the dudes who have like the physical talent, like we've seen Edson Barboza clearly does. And the guys who are able to get to that next level is to be able mid fight to make those kind of adjustments to realize what's happening and to do something about it. First fight with that beard too, I think, right? I couldn't tell you on that. So one. Maybe he was just trying to get used to that. You're saying the beard's evil? I'm saying maybe this wasn't even Edson Barbosa, as far as we know. All right. This could have been somebody else wearing a beard. Yeah. Could have been an Edson Barbosa's brother. Right. Fredson Barbosa. Who would come in with a beard, naturally. Next question this week comes to us from Curtis Bruchard. He writes, I don't know if you guys will do a round on this or not, so can we take a moment to celebrate the win of Frank Mir, or as Chad might say, Francisco Miranda the third? Uh... As an aside, a lot of people don't seem to know this, Ben, but when we when we say fighters' full names on the show, those are their real names. They're not it, making that up. I, I looked on Wikipedia, and it has Francisco Santos Mir. Yeah, the third. So he's right about that. But he says Miranda. Yeah, see, I think he's being goofy there. I think oh, he's okay. implying that we make up fake names for fighters, no, which they're all usually we don't do. No. Except you know though, why? You don't have to. No, you don't. But I, I am waiting, though, for some CME listener to get in there and fuck with Wikipedia just in time to throw, totally throw a wrench in our plans. Because some of these middle names are you know, to the point where if you told me that we'd just been trolled by a Wikipedia hacker, I'd have to believe it. Anyway, the question goes on. Where does Frank Mir go from here? He suddenly seems to have a lot of options from trilogy fights against Lesnar or Nogueira, old-timer fights against Arlovsky or Gonzaga, or maybe even someone like Mitrione or Duffy. Please discuss. Um, you had an interesting piece on uh, MMA Junkie this week in the wake of Frank Mir's win over uh, Bigfoot Silva in the main event of Fight Night 61. Uh, the night where almost all of the underdogs won, yeah. by the way, including both Michael Johnson and Frank Mir, right? He was the underdog to Bigfoot. He here. was, yeah, like three to one. Uh, uh, bad news for at least uh, one of the online bookies from what I saw. Yeah, uh, and and I believe your point basically was when an, an ailing, like not ailing, but old fighter like this, like Frank Mir, who had, was coming in off an 0-4 stretch, gets a big win in a main event fight like this. Uh, it's hard to tell if it like revitalizes his career or just offers him like a temporary reprieve from the inevitable. Yeah, well, I, for a few different reasons in this one, too, because for one, uh, it lasted a minute and 40 seconds. So you don't really have a whole lot to draw on as far as uh, evidence that everything has turned around for him. I mean, we heard a lot beforehand like, OK, he's figured it out now. He's figured out how much to work, how much to rest, how to manage his body so he can hang at home on the couch with a little dog perched on his shoulder and play with the kids and still go in there and get enough work in the gym and then take an ice bath and go home. Uh, and then he's going to be totally fine. Doesn't even need the TRT anymore. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's all the stuff that everybody says, right? You know, best training camp, their lives, best shape, their lives, all that same crap that everybody does. So you don't know what to make of it. And I mean, he did, his boxing looked better. Like it looked uh, something that we haven't really seen from him too much lately. Um, but then you're like, okay, you land one good left hook on Bigfoot, whose chin seems increasingly suspect. As don't he, tell him that though. As he gets a little older, uh, he goes down. You, you put him away there, and you're like, okay, does this mean Frank Mir really has figured something out and has kind of turned a corner in, in his the downslope of uh, his career? You got to think he's almost 36, or does it just mean that Bigfoot Silva done fall off uh, and? If you put Frank Mir up against somebody like a Todd Duffy, he gets absolutely murdered. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. But it it is one of those things where, you know, you heard Bigfoot Silva after this loss. You lose a fight like that and, hey, you know, I got caught. I did everything right. It just wasn't my night. This Don't read too much into it. This doesn't determine the entire arc of my career. But if you win this fight, <laughs> then, hey, man, it's proof. 
it's proof that you finally finally found the magic formula. You're back in this, and this is just the beginning of all the wonderful things that are going to happen to you. It's interesting to me, though, that we keep coming back to this idea of Brock Lesnar, right? Like, what? Leave it alone, man. Just leave it alone. Right? Like, we've heard there's some rumblings out there that he's going to be done with WWE after WrestleMania in, in either March or April. I don't know the when exact When was the last date. time we heard these rumblings? It seems like it's like every six weeks. It does. It makes us as a community seem a little bit desperate. Yeah. It's like... Like once, uh, when my dog and I were were out walking uh, on a route, well, you guys by our, saw Brock Lesnar. <laughs> basically, uh, <laughs> we were out walking on our route uh, that we go in our neighborhood, and he found like like a piece of discarded pizza crust just laying on the ground, and it was like, oh, awesome! And he ate it, and that was like four or five years ago. And now, still, every time we walk by that spot, he pays very close attention because he. Could happen again, man. That's what we are when it comes to Brock Lesnar. Like, he was here for a little while. Uh, it did pulled in a, a bunch of viewers and a bunch of interest and excitement. And then he left. And we've spent like every six weeks since then wondering, is he going to come back? Oh, maybe he's got the diverticulitis healed up, Chad. He's going to come on back. Everything's going to be wonderful again. It'll be 2010 all over again, bro. I know that one of the things that we can never rely upon athletes to do is make good decisions with their own lives. But to me, when I look at the situation that Brock Lesnar has himself in now, I just cannot fathom that he would want to return to the UFC because uh, he's back in WWE. WWE gave him a sweetheart deal where he barely has to travel. He's not even on the show, really, uh, until he has to show up at some pay-per-view and defend the championship. They made him the champion, even though he's barely on the show. They book him like he's a goddamn monster, which I suppose... In, in that realm, he is. So, like, there's. And Alistair Overeem doesn't knee him in the gut? Yes, exactly. Like, he doesn't get punched in the face. Like, every time you see him now, man, he's got that nasty scar right there on his face from where he got beat up, uh, by Cain Velasquez. And, uh, uh, I just can't fathom it, man, that he would want to come back. And, and as an outside, uh, you know, addition to that, I don't think it would go very well for him. So, like, maybe he will, because, like I said, athletes have been known to make some bad decisions their competitiveness i think gets the better of him and he might feel like he has unfinished business in the ufc but dear god it seems like he's just got himself back into what if you are brock lesnar like the ideal situation yeah. not that brock lesnar has ever been known to be satisfied with the ideal situation no well i think we got a little kind of drifted away from the the point of this question before we we move on from this though uh what do you like better the idea of frank mir like testing himself out against you know some younger heavyweights who we actually might learn something about where everybody is if he fought those guys guys like mitrione or duffy or do you like him just going full old timers division uh gonzaga uh crow cop arlovsky those guys I mean, for Frank Mir, I think the latter makes more sense, yeah. right? Like, and you're in the perfect division to do it. Everybody in the division's as old as you are. You might as well take advantage of that. He's already fought a lot of those guys, unfortunately. So, you know, it would mostly have to be rematches, uh, I, I guess. But, like, um, I mean, if you're Frank Mir, I, I think that, like, going home to, to – you know, be with your wife and kids and, and maybe train some people in jujitsu is probably an option that's creeping up on you quicker and quicker all the time. But if you are going to stick around the, uh, the octagon, uh, I like the idea of Frank Mir kind of going on the legend circuit. But then again, I remember the old Frank Mir. Like I remember when Frank Mir was one of the most exciting guys, you know, exciting prospects, exciting young guys in the heavyweight division. So for me, I, I want to see good things happen for him. I've always, I've always kind of like, uh, kindled this respect and like for Frank Mir. Maybe yeah. that's because when I saw him at Best Buy when he was UFC heavyweight champion. They did like an in-store at Best Buy uh, back back when I was just a fan of the sport. Get this. It Best was Buy where? In Vegas. Okay. Get this. It was Frank Mir and the guys from STEM. The, oh, the wow. So, so, so you really had no choice but to go down there. Yeah, me and a minivan full of my buddies showed up there, and guess what? We were the only people there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so we stood around for Frank with Frank Mir for like 15 minutes and just chatted with him, just bullshitted with him about mixed martial arts. How is it that we've done like 150 episodes of this podcast, and this is the first time you're telling this story? I don't that know. seems impossible to me. Well, it, was, it was an awesome time. Frank Mir was totally sweet. We kept mentioning uh, this Pride was, was in operation 
back in those days. We kept mentioning heavyweights that he could fight, and Frank Mir, every time we would mention one, would be like, oh, I'd kill that guy. Just like <laughs> every single one, except for Nogira, who oh. we mentioned, and he was like, oh, that'd be a tough fight. That'd be a tough one. That was the only guy that he uh, expressed any trepidation whatsoever about fighting. Meanwhile, the the dudes from STEM stood nearby having a discussion about French ex- existentialism, yeah, I assume. Ain't, ain't nobody was getting their autograph. Uh, the next question this week comes from Beaston258. He writes, Boxing booked their super fight. Mayweather and Pacquiao will fight on May 2nd. The Vegas over-under for pay-per-view buys is $3.15 million, not including closed circuit and movie theater buys. The projected price is 100 bucks, and it's completely worth it. Zufa has an uncharacteristically good fight card booked in that same building uh, three weeks later, featuring two great champions they're trying to get over and a contender they want to sell. This might just be me, but asking 65 bucks after people just dropped a C-note on the biggest fight of all time, strictly in terms of dollars, seems like a bad idea. You're asking the casual audience to double their cable bill in May while also offering two fight cards for free that month, and there's a heavyweight title fight the next month, and Aldo McGregor the month after that. I love the UFC 187 main card, but it seems like the equivalent of at the of the Buckeyes playing the Pats here almost seems like they're unnecessarily handicapping the card's commercial potential. Hope I'm wrong, but I still have memories of 165's 310,000 buy rate after Mayweather Canelo. Oh, wow. What a detailed question. It is a detailed question, but it does seem like kind of a bummer deal for the UFC to have Mayweather Pacquiao like drop the same month of that UFC 187 card, which as of last week, they were still stocking with awesome fights because they just stuck Saron Nurmagomedov on there. Uh, but then again, like they had to know that, that Mayweather Pacquiao was targeted for that May 2nd date, right? Like that's been in the news for a while. And, and I think we all kind of knew it was coming. It seemed like, even though I don't follow the situation that closely, that the, the only hangup was Floyd Mayweather for a while. And then, and, but I mean, in the last couple of weeks, it seemed like there was this mounting momentum that everyone kind of knew that this was going to get done. Okay. But wh- I mean, what do you want to do if you're the UFC there? I don't think you can really live your life that way, trying to run away from as far as you can get from that date. I also want to go back to the, the, part where beast in 25, eight insists that the projected price is a hundred bucks and it's completely worth it. No, no, it's not. Well, yeah, one boxing match. You're you're telling me this one boxing match is worth a hundred bucks to watch on TV. You're going to have to get a lot of friends together, as Dana White would say, uh, to to make this one seem like it's worth it. I mean, I guess I'm just not as huge a boxing fan anymore as a lot of people are out there, Uh, especially. I don't know, man. Uh, I don't feel that great about giving money to Floyd Mayweather uh, at this point, since he seems like uh, just like a woman beating jerk uh, for just as a person. So I don't know. I. I don't see how that one, you look at that and you think, okay, take a hundred of my American dollars uh, so I can watch you two dudes fight. Yeah, I'm not a huge boxing guy either. And then the price that we have seen bandied about everywhere is a hundred dollars. That does seem a little bit steep to me, but clearly people are going to pay it. Uh, I wonder though about the crossover audience, you know, clearly like if you are one of these weird casual viewers who apparently is just hanging around hoping to buy a pay-per-view every month who are people that I've never met before, but apparently they exist in droves, just waiting for Stefan Bonner and Tito Ortiz to be fighting on Spike TV one day. Absolutely. So they can droves. tune in and watch the shit out of that. Uh, if you're one of those guys hanging around in May, I would think Pacquiao Mayweather, which is the, the enormous fight everyone's been talking about for years, probably gets your money. But like, in terms of actual mixed martial arts fans, like, is there a tremendous crossover? I don't, my guess would be that there's probably not as big as we might assume. I mean, I think this hurts the UFC for sure, but like hardcore MMA fans are either going to watch both or choose to watch UFC 187, I would think. Yeah, I would think so, too. And, and I also think that, you know, just in terms of how you're you're planning out your year, I, I still I feel like we we want it both ways sometimes. Like we want to say to the UFC, no, don't pack this pay-per-view with all your best stuff because it's so soon after this other pay-per-view that's going to draw a lot more attention uh, but then we also complain about so many of the pay-per-views just being about one fight, one or two fights maybe, and a lot of filler underneath. I mean, that seems to me like when you see some of this booking that's going on now, uh, the UFC loading up on a couple of big pay-per-views later, you're like, yes, that's what we were missing from the old days was a pay-per-view that felt like the entirety of the card is worth it. Uh, and I think that that's you can make a, a pretty good contrast between that and what you have in Mayweather Pacquiao, which is just 100 bucks for one fight. 
And one of those dudes is a woman beater. So there's that. Last question this week comes to us from Clark Douglas. He writes, the UFC got together last week to announce a new proposed drug testing policy, or at least Lorenzo Fertitta and that lawyer dude talked about it. Dana White mostly shouted at us about other stuff. Is this the shit we've all been waiting for? Is this the Holy Grail discuss? Uh, so yeah, the big, uh, UFC PEDs policy press conference went down last week. Uh, and it did sound pretty good, you know, after kind of a slow and weird start where they did in fact let Dana White shout at us about some stuff and announce a fight, which it felt like he couldn't, just couldn't help himself from doing. He just can't, just can't talk to us like in a calm, rational person, right? Like, uh, like Lorenzo can? Right, yeah. What is with that? They, 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 they did finally get around to laying out the, the idea for this new drug testing policy, which I think, we all assume sounds suspiciously similar to the one that they announced and then called off last year. Uh, but it does sound like a step in the right, in the right direction. Uh, it, it does inch ever closer perhaps to the, to the holy grail of, of drug testing and, and hints at some substantive steps at actually cleaning up the sport. But I think if you're listening closely, you'll denote a lot of qualifiers in that, uh, paragraph that I just said, because so far they haven't done anything. Yeah. So the, uh, the devil in this thing will be seeing what they eventually come up with in terms of actual action and how that compares to the grand vision that was laid out last week. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I do think that we should, uh, be encouraged by the grand vision, at least the things that, that the UFC executives said. Right. right. They at least proves that they know what a, a sound, uh, effective drug testing program would look like. And the only question is whether they can implement it and whether they will. And I, you, you're right that it does sound a lot like what they were said to be considering before they backed off of it. Uh, and then they kind of were forced to come back around to the idea after the Anderson Silva drug test failure and, and all that other stuff. So I think the, I mean, I talked to a bunch of the state athletic commission people about, you know, can they even do this? How would this work? And there's a, like a lot of those people don't really know yet. They, they're right. waiting to hear the specifics from the UFC. I mean, legally, there's a lot of gray areas here and it's not necessarily something that's going to be easily worked through. And especially for the UFC to set itself that July 1st, 2015 deadline, which A, tells everybody on the roster, get your shit together. Uh, you know, get off of whatever you need to get off because the, the testing is coming. But it also sets you a pretty limited window to to get a bunch of stuff done as far as state athletic commissions. I heard different things uh, from different commissioners about how that could or couldn't happen. Can they just write it into the contracts? Do they need state law to be changed? Do they need just bout agreements to be changed? Nobody really seems to know for sure yet. Um, but I think the, the big thing that we're all going to be waiting to hear is who's the third-party testing agency that you go with? Because it's one thing to say we're going to do it through a third-party testing agency and we're going to spend millions on it. Um, but we need to hear who your agency is. And I mean, I know how much the UFC hates to do this with everything, but like spell everything out beforehand, have a policy and say, here's what happens to everybody. If you test positive once for these substances or these substances, here's what happens and stick to it with everybody. I mean, the problem with the UFC with all this kind of stuff has been a lack of transparency. And that's the stuff they need to fix here is you need to let us know like, Hey, we showed up at this guy's gym today and we tested him and here were the results. Like, don't just have it be some stuff like this secret Michael Johnson suspension where we only find out later. Yeah. Um, and you're right. You got you to give them kudos, I think, for uh, at least laying out the thing that I called the grand vision, even though a lot of the finer points appear to be uh, theoretical at this point. Um, and it, it does seem like a, like a situation where uh, it certainly leaves the door open for a lot of, of, various interpretations to eventually become the the thing that turns into the the drug testing policy uh and i think you know I, luke thomas might have mentioned this on twitter but i was struck by the same thing when they when they announced this like uh you're telling these people what they can and can't wear now you're you're uh, uh gonna impose this new drug testing policy which i think we all agree is a good idea uh and and you know you're you're talking about ever strengthening the the fighter contract. It's going to get to the point where like these people just aren't independent contractors anymore, right? Like we're, are, we're already at that point, right? Come on. Where it makes more sense to just kind of bite the bullet and make them employees. I think. Yeah. Well, you know, and 
it's not like the UFC is the only company in America right now trying to really stretch that definition of independent contractors. But it was interesting to see at one point where Lawrence Epstein, the, the COO, held up their independent contractor status as if to say, like, well, see, in some regards, our hands are tied. We can't really do anything about it because, you know, it's not like the NFL. Our fighters aren't employees. They're independent contractors. And you're like, yeah, but that's because you want it that way. That's right. not because it was the fighter's idea. Like, you're the ones claiming that they're independent contractors and ma- and insisting that they uh, maintain that status, even though by every definition that matters, increasingly so, they're employees. Yeah, and I think that you're. it's becoming more and more apparent now that fighters are going to have to have some kind of representation. Uh, you kind of hate drug testing to be the big sticking point yeah, for, for like fighter rights because I think that's – but if they wanted to, they could say they could just, they could point to July 2015 and say, okay, look at all the stuff that starts to kick in in July 2015. Like it's not just drug testing; it's the Reebok deal that you know we had no voice in. Uh, the drug testing thing where you decided that you might suspend us for four years in a, in a first offense. Uh, you know, I'd be surprised if they actually end up going with something like that. But even two years or something, all this stuff is kind of happening outside of our control. The only way to do something about it is to band together. But, you know, it does – it also – like we were talking before about, hey, what if the UFC decides, all right, we don't want to go through the state athletic commissions. We don't know what to do with that. So we'll just put it in everybody's contracts that they agree to this this kind of testing and these suspensions if they get caught. Uh, and it is a, a sticky thing for the fighters because – on one hand, you could see why some of them might balk at giving the UFC that degree of control over their careers. But on the other hand, you know what the UFC is going to do if, if a fighter was like, you know what? I'm not signing this. You know, most of them know they don't have that kind of negotiating power to begin with. But the few who do, if they said to the UFC, I'm not signing this thing, the UFC would immediately get off the phone. Dana White would be on the phone to, to one of his favorite reporters saying, hey, Guess who won't sign the the anti-doping clause in the contract? What do you think that means? I don't know. Well, I think the only certainty here is that we're not done talking about this. Uh, this will come up again and again, I'm sure, in the near future of our show, which is good that we'll have stuff to talk about. Uh, as for right now, though, that's going to do it for listener mail. If you want to get in touch with the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, we thought that Kat Zingano was going to get her shot at Ronda Rousey after she beat Misha Tate way back in April of 2013, Uh, but obviously that didn't happen, and so we've been trying to kind of put this fight back together ever since then. It happens this weekend on Saturday at UFC 184, and as I said in the introduction, while I don't think that this is a disinteresting matchup, uh, and Kadzingana was undefeated and is a tough fighter, uh, and, and I think brings some stuff to the table here that, that could uh, make this fight sort of interesting. Nobody really expects her to win. Uh, it would be hard to match Ronda Rousey up with anyone at this point that we, like, expected to beat her. Um, but what, what to use the most interesting aspect here? Well, like, what thing will you be looking for in this fight? Maybe this entire event? Uh, and, and is there some way that, that when this is over, we will be able to judge any of this like worthwhile or a success or a failure. Well, I'm interested to see how uh, Kat Zingano's jujitsu skills, especially defensively, help her out there just to keep her from getting armbarred. Because I think it's always an interesting thing when you have somebody who, you know, they have a move. They, they have this one move that you can count on that you know that in certain positions they're going to look for. And so, you know, I think a lot of people think that it's easier than it is, but everybody we've ever seen who has like that one move submission wise, uh, eventually that starts to catch up with them. I mean, I don't know if it's, if that's going to ever be the case with Rousey against the, the competition she's facing or if Kat Zagata is going to be that person. But I am interested to see somebody who has a, a good, you know, submissions background who can maybe tell themselves, okay, look, I'm probably going to get thrown on my head at some point. Probably going to have Ronda Rousey sitting there in side control with me doing that like immediate arm bar setup that she just kind of lands in. What then? 
Uh, I, would be, I would be really interested to see how Kat Zingano handles that. I mean, the problem for me is when you think about all the, the good things Kat Zingano has going for her, and there are plenty of them, and I really like watching Kat Zingano fight. Uh, she's an exciting fighter, a lot of fun to watch. Uh, but as far as what we've seen from her in the UFC, uh, slow starter, which yeah. does not bode well against Ronda Rousey. No, it doesn't. But one of the things that I think is interesting about Kat Zingano is that she's super durable. Uh, we saw that in her last fight against Amanda Nunez. Uh, like she got down in that first round. Like that wasn't going her way. And right. she kind of came back, uh, in the second and third to, to, to like take over and then eventually finish the fight, like in about a minute, 30 seconds into the, into the final round. Uh, but I think that dovetailing a little bit with this idea that Ronda Rousey is really infatuated with her hands right now, that she, she might come out and, and try to do some boxing and or kickboxing, uh, with Kat Zingano. I think, could make this sort of an interesting matchup. I mean, I think it probably ends the way most Ronda Rousey fights end. And, you know, that's just because if you let her get her hands on you, she has that like judo prodigy uh, chain of takedowns that she can go to where she is probably going to throw you and she is probably going to land right in that armbar position, as you mentioned. But like, uh, you know, Kat Zingano has proved difficult to finish and, and Ronda Rousey, she had a really, uh, very short outing against Alexis Davis at UFC 175. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see Rousey come out and try to work her, her boxing skills a little bit. Um, cause they've been talking about that a lot. Uh, and so, you know, maybe Kat Zingano, uh, makes it the furthest of anyone in this fight. I don't know. I think like, even though we're not expecting her to win, would it be considered a big, uh, moral victory if she like goes to decision or gets into the third round or the championship rounds? I, I think kind of, yeah. She goes to if she goes the distance with Ronda Rousey, I would consider that a moral victory for Katzengano. And like you said in the opening, everybody wants to see good stuff happen for Katzengano. I mean, God knows she's had enough tough stuff to deal with recently, and she seems like a, a really awesome person. So yeah, you'd you'd want to see something like that. And that honestly seems like maybe the best you could reasonably hope for is that she puts up a really good showing, uh, shows that toughness, goes to a decision, uh, because you know I feel like. The talk that we used to have about Ronda Rousey, especially about her hands, is for one thing, she doesn't seem to mind getting hit in the face. She comes forward, doesn't move her head a whole lot. You can hit her, you know, and she's going to march straight in on you. But at the same time, uh, she's going to march straight in on you and then just keep coming. Like she doesn't get hit in the head and then lose her bearings and do the Brock Lesnar backpedal or anything. Like she's going to keep on coming after you after that. So I, I think the time to exploit that was, a few fights ago, a couple of years ago, back when, you know, I think Misha Tate had the, in their strike force fight. That's the first time they fought. I think that Misha had the most success and the greatest chance to have success there of anybody we've seen so far. And instead of keeping with it, you know, she, she's having some success connecting with her and then she starts to load up a little bit and then allows Rousey to get in there and throw her in an arm bar. Uh, I don't know if we can keep saying that that's a huge weakness in her game anymore. I think she's done a pretty admirable job of, of closing up that hole, such as it was, uh, and now you're seeing her hurt people with her hands, you know, going right after them. And, and, and that's what we saw in the last one. I just don't know with this one, if you're thinking about how Kat Zingano wins, I mean, picture in your head a Kat Zingano victory here. How does it happen? Yeah, I think it's tough to say that for almost anyone in this division. Uh, and, you know, just because Ronda Rousey has been so dominant, um, you know, we haven't seen Ronda Rousey get out of the third round yet. In fact, when she beat Misha Tate at UFC 168, I think it was right at the beginning of the third round. Aside from that, it's been all first round finishes for her. Um, so there's still the, the outside chance that she fades. If you get, get deep into fights and you can push the pace on her a little bit, maybe I think we're like, I say that. And even as the words come out of my mouth, I feel like I'm grasping at straws a little bit. But like we talk about sometimes with these MMA fighters that have been really dominant, uh, there are still boxes to check off a lot of the times with a lot of these fighters. And, and, you know, when you see them against a kind of opponent they haven't faced before, or you see them get put in a situation that they haven't faced before, uh, sometimes the flaws become apparent. And sometimes in retrospect, you look back on it and you think, Oh, of course. Of course, that was a flaw of that particular fighter. Uh, with Ron Rousey, we don't have any reason to believe that those flaws exist right now. But I don't know. Maybe maybe Kat Zingano can expose a couple that we haven't seen before. Uh, this is a big spot, though, right, for, for Ronda Rousey, maybe for the women's bantamweight division on the whole. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Uh, even though there's bigger stuff maybe on the horizon for her, which I think we're going to talk about in round three, uh, you know, this will be 
a UFC main event for her and for the women's bantamweight title. And previous to this, when she's main evented, which she did at uh, UFC 170 with Sarah McMahon and before that at 157 with Liz Carmbouche, there's been kind of like a built-in storyline to hang your hat on in terms of promotion, like the Olympian versus Olympian thing with Sarah McMahon and the Liz Carmouche fight was the one where they, they had already made Rousey the, the women's champion, but that was the one where she quote-unquote won the title sort of. Uh, this one, a little bit uh, more like subtle i get i don't know if there's a like a storyline that has really played out promotionally um so like wh- what are we expecting buy rate wise and and do we have any reason to believe that this weekend's pay-per-view will be a definitive statement on the star power of ronda rassi i don't know i mean i feel like a lot of people are going to want to interpret it that way but there's also I, I i don't think you can just make this exact comparison like hey buy rate equals uh referendum on ronda rousey's popularity because i do think it, it makes a difference it's one thing if you come out and you say at the very beginning, all right, UFC 184, Staples Center, Los Angeles, Ronda Rousey's our headliner. Uh, and then, okay, like then you're putting it all out on the table and whatever your buy rate is, that tells you something. But this one, since it started out with Rousey and Chris Weidman as, you know, co-championship kind of headliners there, uh, and then you lose one, even if the thing that's left over is still awesome, it, for the people who are attuned enough to know, like, hey, this card was more and now it lost something big, it still feels like, you know, the 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 star power has been hurt a little bit. So I feel like that's going to play into it some. I don't know if we should get too worked up about uh, whether this proves she's not the star the UFC has made her out to be. I mean, of course, the UFC is going to say she's a big star all the time. That's that's what they do, right? Like Conor McGregor's the Irish Muhammad Ali. Come on. Like that. I, I don't know. I mean. I think that this one maybe not going to do huge pay-per-view buys, but at the same time, like I hope we all resist the urge to see this as any kind of sign about the absolute future of the women's division. Uh, I, I mean, I'm into it. I, I'm into having the the champ, uh, the the women's 135 pound champ at the top, and then the co-main event be Holly Holm and Raquel Pennington. Especially, I'm sure we'll talk more about Holly Holm, who seems like she might be the heir apparent as a, the challenger there. That stuff seems to me like whether the UFC originally intended this way or not, it's getting behind the women's division and promoting it the same way it would a men's division. And I'm all for it here. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think you get into a problem unless your buy rates are really, really low. I think if she puts up anything uh, respectable. Uh, that that this isn't really a referendum on her as a as a promotional draw, especially because she does have uh, big things I think coming up this year. If all, if all goes according to plan, maybe Holly Holm, maybe even Cyborg Santos later in the year. Those will be big fights. If anything, it might just prove that Ronda Rousey, like a lot of. Uh, you know, emerging UFC champions needs an opponent that like people aren't just going to tune in to watch her fight whoever, uh, which could be a, a significant thing to say and, and, you know, might not really matter in the long run. Um, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two, Ben. What's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, speaking of Ronda Rousey, Chad, I don't know if you've seen, but in recent interviews, the UFC women's bantamweight champ uh, taking more shots at the ring girls, not really mentioning Ariane Celeste by name, but talking about the pay for fighters and saying, you know, whatever they're paid, she feels like they should be paid more than ring girls. Uh, and again, sparking a little little bit of response from Ariane Celeste on Twitter. I'm saying, are you fucking kidding me? You have no idea how much I love it when Ronda Rousey talks shit on ring girls. It is awesome. Come on. Isn't that so perfect? Yeah, it is what one of your favorite say? things. I mean, if Raquel Pennington was talking shit on the ring girls, she'd be a little leery of some blowback from the UFC brass. What are they going to say to Ronda Rousey? Ronda Rousey can get up in Ariane Celeste's face and call her the C word on live TV and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Are you fucking kidding me? Go on, Ronda Rousey. Call out those ring girls. What do they do? What do they do, Chad? Wow. Okay. Ben, a melancholy, are you fucking kidding me this week? Oh, no. Uh, partially to Brazilian fans and I guess partially just to the cruel MMA gods uh, who may have turned on Antonio Bigfoot Silva this past week and just made him sad. A borderline why they do that. Oh, situation no. oh, no. in Brazil after fight night 61. Uh, Antonio Bigfoot Silva had the, the following to say, unfortunately, the Brazilian fans think that when you lose, you are no good and you need to retire. And when you win, you are the best. No one wants to lose, but it's part of the sport. One time you smile and the other you cry. 
Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Bigfoot Silva coming to the press conference and sitting up there with like a whole roll of scotch tape on his ear. That's just sad, man. Nobody wants to see a giant cry. Nobody wants to see a sad giant. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me, Bigfoot. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, before we get to UFC 184, this Friday night from the Mohegan Sun in Uncasville, Connecticut, the big homie, Manny Newton, going to put his Bellator light heavyweight title on the line against Liam McGeary, who wants to kill him. Okay, actually, maybe not kill him because that seems to bum him out. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned before, you look at the whole lineup here, and this does seem like the best argument to, to actually quit your Zufa bias and sit down and watch a damn Bellator card. You look at the the, the main card, you got Manny Newton and Liam McGeary at the top. Uh, Paul Daly, Czech Congo taking on Mola Wall. Uh, Sukuju, I think I nailed that one. Uh, you even got the barn cat Tamden McCreary on the, uh, Tamden McCreary on the prelim card. Oh, yeah, yes you do. I mean, this is, this is your, your Bellator one that you actually want to stick around and watch, do you well, not? Yeah, especially if you're not feeling that good about dropping sixty bucks on on UFC 184. If you think it looks like a thin card, this is another one of those weekends where I feel like the new Bellator uh, strategy of going to monthly fight cards might help that company. We knew when they had announced the early 2015 schedule that this was going to be kind of the jewel of that uh, slate. Even though the, this fight card, which I think is either still or was originally uh billed as the British Invasion card. Yeah, that didn't, we didn't work out. We lost some some people. We lost uh Michael Page today, unfortunately, I believe to a cut or perhaps a, a late injury, but uh they're going to have big ups to Bellator for doing it before the podcast. That's right. Good job Bellator. We're going to have Brennan Ward uh step in, which I think if you remember correctly, Ben is the guy who previously was known for saying that he trains hard, he skates hard, and he fucks hard uh, in his promo video. Prior Where's the to tenderness, Brennan Ward? His bout, I believe, with Alexander Shlomenko. Where's uh, the foreplay? But this is, I think, a quality event. It's going to be one that I think is worth watching. One of the things that I feel like is interesting about this event and uh, is interesting about the big homie Manny Newton in general is that you really get the the sense that Manny Newton is maybe not the dude that Bellator, either the previous regime or maybe the Scott Coker regime, really wanted to hang its promotional might around. You know what I mean? Like they had him fight Mo the Wall a couple of times. I think when they had Eddie Alvarez and Michael Chandler at the top, like those were guys they would probably rather invest in in terms of being the face of a company. Uh, but when, to me, when you look at it, Manny Newton at this point undoubtedly one of the that company's top stars. He's won like six fights in a row in Bellator. He is, I would describe him as delightfully crazy. Yeah. When you talk to him with his deja vus and whatnot. Coincidences. In fact, when MMA Junkie did a story recently about uh, pro fighters' top uh, health and training tips, I made sure that I looked at it because I thought, oh, they talked to Manny Newton. Like, he's going to say something crazy. And I was disappointed because his health uh, and, like, gym tips were, like, super, like – ordinary and basically like drink a lot of water and i was like man that's not what i want from manny newton no i want manny newton telling me to listen to my deja vus but the thing ben that's interesting about this fight card is that you got liam mcgeary who's a damn giant six foot six maybe a guy who snuck up on some people in bellator one that what i guess will go down as the last light heavyweight tournament and now stands at nine and oh with uh let's see here one two three four five six straight first round finishes so I think he shapes up as maybe the biggest test of the big homies light heavyweight championship career. Yeah, and I think that at this point, haven't we all made our peace with that Manny Newton may not have been who the guy you were hoping was going to come out with oh, the belt? Well, I think it's belt. great. Let's make no too. mistake about that. Like, I think that's one of the things that's great about MMA is that like you have these guys that maybe you didn't expect to be the guys who are going to carry the banner, but they get thrust to the forefront just because they win a lot and because there's something about them that that makes them like marketable in an offbeat way. Yeah, and definitely marketable in an offbeat way is is Manny Newton. And I feel like maybe this is an instance where. 
The Bellator light heavyweight division might have been inadvertently helped by Rampage Jackson wanting to Bolton and head back to the UFC. Because before, if you remember, you know, you had that fight between Rampage and Mola Wall. Uh, and it was supposed to really decide who's going to be the next challenger. Rampage wins it, says he doesn't really want to fight Manny Newton. They train at the same place and have the same coach, and they don't really just want to do it. Uh, and so that was kind of a, a bummer and like a roadblock to, to see what else you're going to do there. So ram- get Rampage out of the picture. Then you can really start to uh, appreciate what Bellator has, what pieces it has to work with at 205 pounds. And there are, you know, some interesting fights that you can make there. I mean, I feel like I wonder if Manny Newton at this point is suffering from like a Joe Biden problem, uh, like we've talked about with some fighters before where we like him because he seems crazy. Uh, and he seems like he's going to say some batshit sh- crazy stuff about what he's been doing, uh, and what he believes. And he might not totally get that. Like to him, he's taking this all very seriously. Uh, you run into a problem there where you can't have this brand of fame or interest. If it's all built like, semi-ironically or is it okay for us to like manny newton for reasons that manny newton maybe never understands no man i think that we have a a lengthy history in this sport of liking people (laughs) for that reason like do you think that i'm not sure that like a guy like fedor emilianenko would ever truly grasp like uh we like these pictures of you always wearing the same sweater or eating two ice cream eating two ice cream cones no he always seemed ducks or whatever he always seemed embarrassed by the the extent to which we did like him he seemed embarrassed for us we want you to get in there looking just as placid as though you're out on a sunday afternoon walk and then just punch tim sylvia's face into the third row like that's what we like about you uh so like Maybe that's kind of a problem, but like I, I feel like as long as it translates to a little bit more money in these guys' pockets, like that's that's sort of the par for the course, isn't it? Yeah, well, I always wonder though. I like it feels like. Do you want to explain to Manny Newton, like for instance, hey, when they ask you for like a health and fitness tip, don't just give some like health and fitness tip that Uriah Faber would give. Say something crazy, man, because that's the thing. Because on one hand, you don't want him to play it up to the point where like it's just fake. One of the things you like about it is that when he's talking about deja vus and coincidences, you're sitting there going, do you hear yourself right now? Because this is crazy, man. But I love it. Keep doing it. But you don't want him to just be faking it uh, because he thinks that we like it. On the other hand, you don't want him to be like, oh, wait a minute. they Everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. Let me pull it back a little bit here and try to be a regular person. No, no, be crazy Manny Newton. Be the big homie. Yeah, well, and I think with Emmanuel Newton, like it's always just going to be a situation where you have to take whatever you're going to get because you remember uh, a, a year or two ago when I was advocating that he should come out in the press and say – well, you're goddamn right he wants to fight Quentin Rampage Jackson. Like, they're not really that good of friends. They just train at the same gym or whatever. And even as I said it, we both knew, like, there was no way Emmanuel Newton was going to do that. That's not his style. Uh, I think you're just kind of uh, stuck with with he is who he is kind of a situation. Now, I don't think you should count out the possibility that we come into the new week with a new champion over in Bellator because Liam McGeary has seemed pretty legit every time we've gotten to see him over there but like either way i, I think it, it works out well for bellator because emmanuel newton has kind of got this this strange and unexpected popularity and liam mcgeary uh is a dude who could be like a top flight prospect he's nine and oh the guy's undefeated and like he's a he's a henzo gracie product uh, uh and is a just a, a a talented grappler and a huge guy so uh he seems like a guy who, who the sky's kind of the limit with him. Well, and it does seem like the, Bellator has reached the point with Emmanuel Newton now where, uh, you're right that if, if he does lose, he, he's established enough that you then look at whoever beats him and say, okay, that guy must be somebody because that's not an easy thing to just come in there and roll over Emmanuel Newton. Also, two things I noticed looking at Emmanuel Newton's uh, Wikipedia page. For one, his nickname is still listed as the hardcore kid at this point. I feel like he needs to drop that and just embrace the big homie because uh, that is an awesome nickname, better than the hardcore kid. Also, were you aware, unless we're being trolled by some some hackers about the middle names again, that his name is Emmanuel Isaac Newton? <laughs> no, that doesn't seem possible, does it? <laughs> yeah, there it is. It's right there. Emmanuel Isaac Newton, born January 2nd, 1984. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess maybe. Maybe his parents were science nerds. You got anything you want to say about the crazy Cirque du Soleil fight pitting Czech Congo against Muhammad Lawal before we move on? Money weight. 
It's just straight up money way. That I could dig it. that could kind of be a terrible fight depending on how things go. But well, best to go into it with those expectations, and, and then, then be whatever you surprised. get, you might be surprised. Also, uh, Paul Daly probably just gonna do something something that hurts somebody. Well, yeah, he's in that uh, that category, guys. You're just gonna watch now because something terrible is gonna happen. Either way, it's about to pop off. Is what you're saying? That's right. That's what I hear anyway. <laughs> That's gonna do it for round number two. We'll be right back. With round number three. Just as we waited a while to watch Ronda Rousey fight Kat Zingano, we've also been waiting a little bit of time here to watch Holly Holm make her Octagon debut. It seems like that's been put off a couple of times, but this weekend we're going to get it. Finally, she fights Raquel Pennington in the co-main event of UFC 184. Uh, Holly Holm rolls in 7-0, and but uh, all of those wins have come on the minor league circuit. She's only fought one person that has a Wikipedia page, and that person is Jan Cuddles Finney back in her second professional fight, who I'm sure you remember getting horribly, horribly beaten by Chris Cyborg Santos a few years ago. I will never forget it. Looked like uh, somebody was assaulting one of the kids from Hanson. Uh, and, you know, Holly Holm, former women's boxing champion, for what that's worth. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. For what that's worth, listen to you. Well, I'm just saying, like, actual boxing people are sometimes a little bit dismissive of women's boxing. Uh, that it, you know, had never really gotten off the ground. The people, I think some people look at the at Holly Holmes' previous MMA fights kind of the same way. She's looked really good in them, but, but who has she fought? To me, I feel like she passes what I would call the eye test as a, a, a high level athlete for this sport, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested to see what she brings to the table in the UFC. Cause she looks, uh, uh, you know, like she's capable of, of good things in there. She looks like she is one of the people that, I would like to see fight Ronda Rousey just because I feel like she may be able to come close to matching Rousey in in pure athleticism. But what do we need to see from Holly Holm this weekend uh, to to kind of justify that belief? Well, I guess we still feel like, right, we want to see her her ground game tested. Uh, And I think that anytime you come from boxing, kickboxing background, everybody's going to assume that you you absolutely have to keep everything standing. Um, But, you know, when I was at Jackson's, I guess it was about a year ago now, uh, and she was in there holding her own in wrestling practices. So it's not like she's a, a complete neophyte there. And they were talking about how how quickly she had picked up a lot of that stuff. Um, so, I mean, I guess, especially with somebody like Raquel Pennington, you would, I don't know if it would be better to see Raquel Pennington be able to take her down or something and, and find out what she has down there, or at least just see Holly Holm be adept enough at staying off the ground. Uh, because I think with Ronda Rousey, right, like you're not going to make up that much ground. Like your, your best hope as Holly Holm is that as a style matchup, what you bring is that you can keep her at a distance, keep her from, from closing in on you and putting her hands on you. And you can just pick her apart with, uh, you know, pinpoint accurate strikes, uh, from the outside. I think that's the real appeal there is the style matchup wise that Holly Holm brings. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it does seem like we still need to see her tested a little bit in some of those areas. Does it not? I mean, you mentioned the, the dismissive attitude about boxing. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think you're right, but I also think that it, you know we do need to see her uh, fight against some some legitimate top level fighters. Uh, Raquel Pennington got a win over Ashley Evan Smith her last time out, uh, first round submission, uh, first round choke out till you fall asleep face first on the mat. Yeah, that would be a technical submission. There you go. In the parlance of our sport. Um, before prior to that though, she she lost to Jessica Andrade at, at UFC 171. Uh, so this kind of seems like one that, that, uh, if you try to get inside the matchmaker's head a little bit, that maybe we want Holly Holm to come out victorious in the co-main event right before Ronda Rousey goes out there and fights Kat Zingano. I mean, have you looked at the odds? No, Hol- Holly the Holm odds? is almost as big a favorite over Pennington as Rousey is over Kat Zingano. You're looking at about nine to one for Holly Holm. All right, well, let's talk about this then. Then what is the proper, let's assume Holly Holm and Ronda Rousey both get their fights to come out according to chalk. What is the the move forward for the women's bantamweight division here? Because we have uh, Chris Cyborg taking on Charmaine Tweet the night before in Invicta. 
uh, Invicta 11. Also, that one's over in Los Angeles, but will air on UFC Fight Pass. Uh, and while we've always heard in the past that there was kind of a rocky uh, negotiating relationship between the UFC and Chris Cyborg, it seems to have subtly warmed over the you know previous months. Suddenly, we've got a, a Chris Cyborg uh, uh, fight retrospective on Fight Pass. It seems like it's kind of you know the 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 ripples in the water lead me to believe that this is a done deal that if she gets this win at Invicta she'll be in the UFC so what's the way forward for the women's bantamweight division as you know as everyone knows previously this division has been Ronda Rousey and everybody else so do we just hurry up and try to make Ronda Rousey versus Cyborg Santos do we make Ronda Rousey versus Holly Holm or lo and behold do we try to make the women's bantamweight division have more than one focal point. Do we try to do something else with Holly Holm or Cyborg Santos instead of just immediately rolling them into a fight with Ronda Rousey? Well, with Cyborg, you still have the weight questions, right? Like, what what weight would you do it at? Can she get down there to one thirty five? What do you do there? You know, I don't know that the a part of me wants to say, hey, if there's any chance to make a Cyborg uh, Ronda Rousey fight at whatever weight it's at. Do that now instead of putting it off for later because, you know, the MMA gods have a way of wrecking those best laid plans. But then another part of me thinks like that the UFC is probably going to make that the last resort, right? Like that they're not going to want to throw Ronda Rousey up against Cyborg until there are no other options. Because what if you get the Gina Carano scenario all over again? What if Cyborg goes out there and absolutely smashes her? Ronda Rousey says to hell with this. I'm going to go be an expendable seven uh go to heaven i assume that's the title expendables go to heaven working title all expendables go to heaven yeah um there you go uh but i don't know the fight i think that a lot may actually depend on how this one goes over with fans we mentioned the what people should take from the buy rate or what they shouldn't if the ufc starts to get around to the point where they realize look Rousey is a little bit too dominant for her own good. People don't want to pay to watch the fights anymore because they think they're going to be over too quickly because they think it's just going to be one-sided because it's just the Ronda Rousey show. Then you need to find somebody you can really invest in as an opponent. And maybe Holly Holm is that person. Uh, if you can you know, use this platform to really catapult her to a little more general fan awareness... Um, but you know, maybe I think the, the cyborg Rousey fight is going to be your lingering super fight out there on the horizon. You know, you never made any of the GSP Silva, Silva, John Jones, any of that, that big stuff going on. Boxing managed to get, uh, Pacquiao Mayweather together. Maybe this is your best chance as the UFC to do one of those. Yeah, I agree with you that the weight is obviously a significant concern that we, you know, no one's sure if, if cyborg can make 135. I don't know that I would say that that fight is a fight of last resort, though, just because my impression is that 2015 is going to be kind of all about making the biggest fights, sort of by necessity at this point, just because uh, we had a tough 2014, the UFC got its credit downgraded, uh, beginning of 2015 has started much the same way in terms of injuries, kind of scuttling big fights, causing uh fights to get pushed down the road and things like that. I think if the UFC has the chance to make a women's fight involving Ronda Rousey that it feels like will really pop the buy rate, it would do that, even if it's against uh, Cyborg Santos. And I kind of think that deep in the heart of of Zufa LLC headquarters, they probably believe that Ronda Rousey would win that fight. Uh, but that's just a guess. So I don't know, but like, I don't, I definitely don't have a hard time believing that we would see that fight later in the year. Um, Holly Holm, I think could use one or two UFC fights, but at the same time, if it seems like she's ready and you don't think Cyborg can get down to the weight, I suppose you go full speed ahead with that. Well, especially if you're the UFC and you've been burned by, uh, weight issues recently, do you not want to see Cyborg Santos prove that she can come in, especially maybe have a fight in the UFC at bantamweight? Yeah. Uh, and not only it helps you feel a little more comfortable building an event around her, knowing like, okay, she can do it and her body won't totally shut down, but also gives you uh, more of an opportunity to show your fans, the people who don't already know her and the people who aren't watching Invicta on Fight Pass, uh, gives you an opportunity to say, hey, have you heard about this monster cyborg Santos? Well, she's going to fight. She's going to wreck some some poor Jan Finney lookalike. Uh, and then she's going to call out Ronda Rousey. And then next thing you know, New Year's Eve, uh, Rousey Cyborg on the undercard of Weidman versus whoever, uh, and you just rake in the pay-per-view dough. 
Well, yeah, if you're going to do it for the title, you definitely want to be in a situation where you're sure she can make the weight. Uh, you don't want to get into a John Lineker style situation, but I think you might do it even if you got to do it at 140 or something, do a catch weight or, or, uh, even if Rousey could go up to 145, you know, if she goes up to 145 and gets smoked by Cyborg, obviously the image takes a hit, but you can always go back to 135 and still be the champ there. Uh, so maybe not the end of the world, although kind of. Yeah. I don't think that's anybody's, uh, best case scenario there yeah although probably let, right I, I let me tell you how much i love what we're doing here though having invicta have their event also in los angeles headlined by cyborg the night before ronda rousey shows up to headline usc 184 in los angeles i like it just like cyborg santos in a kind of daniel cormier way starting to feel like the kid was always in your bracket uh i dig it man i'm into that if she gets on the mic and say she's the kid at the wrestling tournament that's always in your bracket I'm, I'll be into that. I mean, I gotta she, be honest with you. She wouldn't even get that reference. No, that's true. All right. Well, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, I'm just saying there's two things that I like about smiling Sam Alvey. First, that he's not one of these guys who's going to show up for a day trip with a huge duffel bag packed. Uh, he's not going to bring a bunch of feints or head fakes or throw a bunch of damn jabs. He's only going to bring the one punch that he needs. And he's going to walk around the cage until he sees his chance to throw it. And then he's just going to knock you the F out with it. That's the first thing I like. The second thing that I like about Sam Alvey is that he's obviously not going to spend a bunch of money having somebody design or print or even copy edit his (laughs) t-shirt. He's just going to print it out at home, probably on his word process make a uh, an iron-on transfer for it uh just use a couple of different size fonts a times new roman and put in a, a questionable apostrophe n in there uh and just roll with it because i guess smiling sam alvey is on some diy shit and i'm just saying i'm totally down with that just, just saying. saying just saying well chad my just saying this week uh frank Mir talking about his win over bigfoot silva in the post-fight press conference and whether it sets up a trilogy fight with brock lesnar talking about how he had been kind of holding out that hope but saying that he didn't want to win this just because he was motivated solely by the thought if i win this then i might get to fight brock lesnar a third time instead Quote, it was like, man, I need to win this to keep my job or my wife is not going to let me go to the gym anymore. It's not going to pay the bills. I'm going to have to get a nine to five job. Now, I also have two things I want to just say about that. One, that is former UFC heavyweight champion, a guy entering, I believe, his 14th year with the UFC, talking about how if he got cut now, he'd have to go get a job at Office Depot or some shit, uh, which kind of lets you know in a lot of ways how the UFC is different from other major sports if a former champion is worried about going to get a job. Uh, but number two... That's what the motivation is coming down to, huh? For for Frank Mir is just keep on winning, uh, at least to, enough to justify letting his wife or his wife letting him continue to go to the gym. Because if he loses, then his wife might make him do a few more chores around the house. I'm just saying there are worse motivations out there. Just saying. Yeah, that's a that's a mid thirties man's motivations right there. Mm-hmm. That's not a nineteen year old kid. Yeah. Oh, no, I can't cook dinner for and, and watch the kids tonight. I got to go to the gym. Oh, if you get cut, guess what, man? Your ass is there making hamburger helper and doing bath time, and nobody wants that. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all of the things that happen and what I think is a pretty big weekend for mixed martial arts. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So if this is your dream... Yeah. you wake up tomorrow mm-hmm. and none of this has ever happened right which part will you be most pleased about uh the part where we never made any damn money that's <laughs> right yeah, yeah. that's because i assume when you wake up you'll be rich yeah. Yeah. this is just the flight of fancy of a rich man this is what happens every time when i come in here and i sit down to do this podcast i look at you 